Welcome to the Movie Planet Podcast. This week we are continuing our look at the Die Hard franchise with the third movie in the series, Die Hard with a Vengeance. With Joe. Be careful. Don't open it. What? I gotta open it. And it's gonna be all right. And JC. I told you not to open it. This week, we are talking the third movie in the John McClane series, Die Hard with a Vengeance, starring Bruce Willis, Jeremy Irons, Samuel L. Jackson, and a whole bunch of faces no one will remember. <laughs> it's true. Is there anybody else you really care about in this movie? No. Okay. Uh, directed by, welcome back, John McTiernan. You were excited to have him back. I am very excited because Rennie Harlan, you kicked Die Hard 2 in the for some reason. Yeah, you kind of screwed it over. Little trivia about this movie. It was made for $90 million and made $100 million domestically and 366 worldwide. Wow. Uh, for a second, I was like, wow, it didn't even make its money back, but then with the worldwide. Interesting fact about that, even though the film's domestic box office is only about $100 million, its massive international box office makes this film the highest worldwide box office winner of 1995. Nice. This movie is perhaps one of the few movies... It may be the only one that could manage to become the biggest worldwide box office winner of the year when its domestic box office was not even in the top five. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny, actually. Which Uh, is sad, because this is a good movie. And it should be noted that this movie is really interesting, because when you watch the tones of it, this movie came out in 1995 in the middle of the OJ trial. I didn't put that together. That's and when you look at it that way, you're like, oh my gosh, this is a this is a heated movie when you no, look at it that way. No wonder they they had all the race things because I did kind of think I'm like, what is going on that yeah. they are making this such a big deal? Well, that makes sense because it's OJ. The C, the sandwich board that Bruce Willis wears while filming in Harlem was originally blank, rather than text, to ensure that no one was offended by the racist message. The racist message was added with CGI in post-production. And I was going to say digitally later. Some television broadcasts use an alternate version where the sign reads, I hate everybody, which is sometimes erroneously said to be the original version of the sign used for filming, but this too was added with CGI in post-production. Wow, that's actually really cool to know. Yeah. And you wouldn't know it looking at it. No, you wouldn't. I mean, it looks like it's, it's legit painted on. Yeah. Originally titled Simon Says, where Zeus was scripted as a woman... And was uh, considered and was and, Samuel L. Jackson makes this movie. And it was considered by Joel Silver as the fourth sequel to Lethal Weapon. Fox did not agree to sell the script to Joel Silver, though. Huh. So they sold it to McTiernan and he was like, We got Die Hard. We'll do it with Die Hard. So this was supposed to be a Lethal Weapon movie. Mm-hmm. That's intriguing. Uh Sean Connery was McTiernan's first choice for the role of Simon Gruber. No. He turned down the role. Oh, that would have been bad. He turned down the role saying that he didn't want to play such a diabolical villain. I don't think he's that diabolical, do you? (laughs) Wait, I I think diabolical. He doesn't really kill anybody. No, he doesn't, but he certainly plans a lot. He does. That's not diabolical. Well, diabolical, I consider, you know, master at planning. Oh. Uh, the sex scene between Jeremy Irons and Sam Phillips was added in the last minute because John McTiernan knew that the film would get an R rating and he might as well put a sex scene in. <laughs> there wasn't a sex scene. They're At like, the very end when they were in the boat. They like, no, that's like they start kissing and he rips the shirt off. That's, <laughs> that's not a sex it. scene. 
even though this is the third film in the Die Hard series, it is the first that takes place in the same city that John McClane is a police officer. That was actually the first thing I wrote. I'm like, hey, we're finally in New York City. Yeah. Each film in the Die Hard series contains a key scene involving an elevator. It does. Yeah. That's weird. John McTiernan, (laughs) in order to make this film, declined to direct Batman Forever. Smart move, man. (laughs) No shit. Smart, <laughs> smart move. But funny thing about that, Batman Forever came out in 1995. Guess which one ranked higher domestically? Batman. Yep. John McClane doesn't kill a bad guy until over an hour into this movie. That is longer than any Die Hard movie. That is true. The subway Maybe scene. Maybe they figured they were making up after he killed so many in the last one. The subway scene when Zeus is held at gunpoint by the police officer is more or less the exact same scene that Samuel L. Jackson replayed later as Frozone in The Incredibles. Oh, I need to watch that again now. <laughs> In both scenes, Jackson had to reach for something while a nervous police officer asked him to freeze. <laughs> I'm, oh, I so see it. I, yeah, I so see it now. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Despite not being set at Christmas, it still references Die Hard and Die Hard 2, which oh, were set at Santa. Oh, Santa. We got to go find Santa. The shoplifting kids also say it's Christmas. You could steal City Hall. While in the aqueduct, McLean further mentions, we got a report of some guy coming through here with eight reindeer. Then shoots the terrorist and continues, they said he was a jolly old fat guy with a snowy wet beard and a cute little red and white suit. I'm surprised you guys didn't see him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I caught that. That was funny. So that's our trivia for this movie. Uh, JC, you had never seen this? I have never seen this. Were you excited about getting to jump into this movie? I was solely because of Samuel L. Jackson. I Uh, knew that Samuel L. Jackson was in this movie, and I'm like, okay, I want to see what he does. Yeah. I believe this was one of the follow-ups to Pulp Fiction, actually. His, his star had just started to rise. Which again. I've also never seen. We'll do that another year. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know I had really fond memories of this. I know this movie came out in 95. I was, just a, I was at the end of my freshman year. And this speaks so much to how you are as a kid. The things that you gravitate to. Yep. Edgy stuff. And this was edgy. You had your racism stuff in it. You had, you know, a whole lot of fucks in there. And it was... A, it was. It didn't feel, though, as R-ish as the first one did, though. No, it didn't. I think that it also... I mean, if you watched Die Hard, this is kind of like... You saw this as the end of a trilogy, almost. No, see, in all honesty, I sort of see this as the sequel. Okay. okay. I, I ignore two. Oh, you it, don't even it, count it. Doesn't, no, it's not I, in even all there. honesty, when I was watching this, I'm like, <laughs> this feels like a sequel. Yeah. This one feels like it happened right after Nakatomi. I, uh, I, I, and there's, I mean, again, there's lots of one-liners that you'll hear teenagers say around 1995, just walking around. I'm Zeus, father of Apollo. Don't fuck with me here. I'll stick a lightning bolt up your ass. <laughs> I mean, everything Samuel L. Jackson says is teenage clickbait. That is true. Yeah. It also takes place in 1995. Right. I mean, it's not right after, but. Previously to that, you had the Rodney King riots. You've got OJ on trial. Race is at an all-time high in the States. Well, then. Yeah. I think we're at a different place now. I now. think we've clearly eclipsed it. Yeah. But it was a hot-button issue. And that probably was what led to a lot of people not seeing this movie domestically because there were so they many were other things going on. They were turned off by the race, yeah. Or they were just all at home watching CNN and watching OJ. Yeah. Uh, so let's do the synopsis here. <clears throat> let's go. In New York City, the Bonwit Teller department store is destroyed by a bomb during the morning commute, which, by the way, best use of the song Summer in the City. (laughs) (laughs) The New York City Police Department receive a call from Simon, ordering them that suspended police officer, Lieutenant John McLean, be dropped in Harlem wearing a sandwich board that says, I hate, and the N-bomb. I'm not even going to say it on here. 
I yeah. don't like saying it. And threatening to detonate another bomb if they don't comply. They collect McLean, and boy, do they collect this guy. He looks like he was just living on the street. Yeah, really. And follows Simon's instructions. McLean is standing out there, and he is saved by a, from a potential attack by young men by Zeus Carver, played by Samuel L. Jackson. Like, part of me, while I was watching that for the first time, I'm like, what? Somebody would have shot him. <laughs> yeah. Like, they wouldn't have even taken the time to walk up to him. Like, I almost find it a little unbelievable because I feel like he would have just been shot. Zeus is a nearby shop owner. McLean and Carver escape and return to headquarters, police headquarters, where Simon calls again and threatens to detonate more bombs if McLean and Carver do not follow his instructions. Now, there's a lot that happens here. There is. The introduction of Samuel L. Jackson when he's talking to the kids is phenomenal. It really is. I love the little lesson that he does, and then at the end he's like, "What? How, and who how do don't we, we trust? <laughs> who don't we trust? Yeah, white people. <laughs> Th- those are the one-liners Joe was talking about before. That's that whole monologue is just chock full. But that whole monologue tells you everything you need to know about Samuel L. Jackson's character. It does. Everything you need to know is right there. It is the perfect setup to a character. It's the best introduction. And this is great because right before that, you get a introduction to John McClane, and this is not the John McClane we saw at the end of Die Hard Two. No, and I'll be honest, you are. I felt like I was left more questions where you know exactly what's going on with Carver. You there is so much like, what the hell's going on? Why is he in trouble? Why are people not kissing his ass after yeah. he saved the world twice? It's like, what the hell? And it, it's I feel like. That's a little bit of a of a mulligan or a more. Why do I always get that wrong? A MacGuffin. A MacGuffin. <laughs> where we're just supposed to believe. Oh well, he just drunk himself to death because that's a leap of faith, because, not a MacGuffin. We talked about that because last time. he didn't he didn't call his wife for a year. Yeah, and that that's my other MacGuffin is like seriously M- leap of I, faith. I need to believe that he didn't call for <laughs> a year because they had a bad conversation on the phone. You have to reeducate you what a MacGuffin is. Whatever, go on. <laughs> uh, the. The other thing I see here is that at the end of Die Hard 2, we assumed he was living in Los Angeles. Yeah. And now he's moved back to New York. Why? I don't know. Holly issues. But the nice thing I like about this is that they don't go on to explain it. It's not important. It's not. Yeah, but I care about the story. I know. You care about that character and the aspect of how deep the character goes. But realistically, they could have spent five minutes explaining all the problems he had with Holly. But that's not the plot of the story. The they don't need the story to take it, five minutes. You can do it in, like, one phrase. The plot of the story is his relationship with Hans Gruber and then Simon Gruber. That's the plot. You can have multiple plots. Yes, because in a diehard movie, you want to get real, real deep with it. I'm just saying, I like it deep. <laughs> he looks like shit. He's, I mean, he's clearly not. He's been away from the kids for a long time. And that's another, that's another MacGuffin for me. Like, I'm sorry. I call bullshit. You would want to see your kids and to tell me that you haven't talked to your kids in a year because you're just mad at your wife. Okay. Well, anyway, leap of faith. The MacGuffin. Regardless. I like the word MacGuffin. I know you do. You just got to start using it properly. I'm sorry. It's like calling a dog a cat. Caven Fage. God. I do think you'll appreciate this, though. I'm listening. The police inspector was competent. Oh, my gosh. Did he make up for the other two for you? Yes, he totally did. It's like, not, and I, I wrote down at one point in my notes that this guy is why John McClane views the other two as idiots. Because exactly. if this is the guy in charge, that's what he's used to. Exactly. I felt like all, like, from the police side of things, you pretty much, it was realistic to me. You it handled was competent. It, you handle it that way. Yeah. Like, you have to take some of these things honestly, and you can't take leap of face and... I'm sorry, McLean, I can't follow you and do this because it is my job to follow protocol, SOP, and all that stuff. Yeah. 
Uh, Simon then sends the two guys on a series of children's riddles. Simon says. Which I thought was a brilliant move. You know what? Add this into the plot, because you've already done the whole man versus everybody thing. Yeah. And now, let's change it up a little. Let's change the way that this thing's going to work. See how smart he is. He tells them to reach Wall Street Station, 90 blocks south, within 30 minutes to stop a bomb planted on a Brooklyn-bound three train. McLean boards the subway while Carver drives. McLean locates the bomb and throws it off the train. It's really? Still- You're going to just glance over that awesome car chase? <laughs> you didn't even mention it. Central Park? The whole, yeah, like, that's one of the, granted, it's also completely unbelievable. That car would have been destroyed. Oh, probably, you yes. wa- You watch it land as it comes out of Central Park on the road, and the whole front of the car just goes up straight. <laughs> and in the very next shot, it's, like, pristine driving down the road. I'm like, what the f- it is a cool scene where they're sitting there in traffic and they get stuck. And Samuel L. Jackson says something like, you know, see, I told you, we you know, can't get through the park. I said we're going through the, the park. park. Yep. And you're like, oh, he's going to go off-roading. And th- Yeah, that's a great scene. <laughs> and you skipped it. Well, and you hear Wilhelm scream in there. That's true, you do. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you aiming for these people? No. Just the mind. Maybe, Maybe that mind. Maybe the mind. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so they get there after driving through people. Yep. And they do something also which I thought was a really cool idea, and that was when the traffic did get stopped again, they call in an ambulance to clear the road. And just follow behind. I thought that was very clever, yeah. Yeah. Uh, McLean locates the bomb on the subway, throws it off the train. It still detonates. It derailing the train and sending it through the station with minimal injuries, which, come on. I was going to say, that <laughs> destruction and the way the car also unrealistically kept rolling after its momentum would have clearly died out. Yeah, and the stuntmen in that scene are literally running because that train was coming at them at 40 mi- 45 miles per hour on the set. That's crazy. <laughs> so, they get minimal injuries due to Carver's warnings because he's going to like, hey, cop man, come with me. We're in a huddle in the corner next to a phone. Yep. Uh, as McLean and Carver regroup with the police, they are met by FBI agents who reveal Simon is Peter Krieg, a former colonel in the East German People's Army and a mercenary for hire. Now, mind you, before this, John McLean has no idea what this guy is. No, he has no idea why he's being hunted or chosen or any of this. He's playing along because his, uh, his guy on top of him, his inspector, has told him so, and he trusts him. Yep. Something that he didn't have in any of his other movies. Nope, I agree. Uh, and... This is a smart move. Bring back the Grubers. Gruber. Hans Gruber. Gruber. Hans Gruber was one of those things that you felt missing in Die Hard 2. Yeah, I agree. And you couldn't Which just... is why this feels like a sequel. Krieg is after McLean as Krieg's birth name is actually Simon Peter Gruber, the brother Gruber. of Hans Gruber. Gruber. That's McGruber you're thinking of. I know. It's so funny <laughs> in my head. Whom McLean had previously killed in Nakatomi Towers. Simon calls the police, knowing the FBI is there, that he has planted a bomb in a public school and rigged with a radio detonator triggered by the police band. My favorite part of this is that he knows exactly who the FBI agents are in the Oh, I, I thought that was great. This, <laughs> this movie felt so much smarter. It did, this, didn't it? This movie had a dialogue where I've complimented the other movies on the dialogue. This one had dialogue that it knew where it was going. Yeah. So the dialogue made sense in getting there. The other two movies kind of felt like I don't, they don't know where they're going, so they're just saying, now yeah. it's funny by itself, mm-hmm. but when you put it all together, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. When you put this all together, you're like, oh, <laughs> that was so clever. That was so smart and funny. 
Yeah, I, I, I personally, when I saw that, there's a couple of scenes. There's one where he's on, the, he's trying to get on the phone. He goes, "You could, somebody could have said a fat woman wouldn't get, wouldn't get off the phone." And you know that they're being watched at all times. And it's, now that is another bit of a MacGuffin. Why didn't they put somebody up on the Leap rooftops? Leap of faith. Why didn't they put somebody up on the rooftops? Because that's literally where Gruber was. Oh, let's just watch it down from the building. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing. You don't see Simon Gruber. Until, Until like 40 minutes in. I was going to say about an hour in. Maybe an yeah. hour in. Yeah. Simon tells them that he will get McLean and Carver the school's location if they continue to play his games. While Good McLean thing. and Carver set off on Simon's next, ca- next task, the police organize all the city's public works to begin searching schools using 911 to coordinate activities. And I love the switchboard scene. Yeah, that <laughs> I feel so bad for that woman. Half of New York just called nine one one. Because doesn't he radio it in on yes, a public he radio? Does on a public radio station it says, "By the way, there is a bomb in all of your children's schools," and it's like, even as a parent, I can just imagine the chaos that ensued. Yeah, and mind you, during this whole time, I mean, you're also seeing the plan start to reveal itself that Simon had. That he, this was actually all about money. The explosion in one area. And he's doing the crime someplace else, and all the police are in that one area. Yep. I mean, brilliant move. It was a brilliant move, yeah. I mean, I also like the fact that it's at this point that you're seeing everybody get involved that's a public servant. Yes, that was a cool scene. Yeah, I don't care if you're transport. I don't care if you're uh, sanitation. Everybody. And they're not bickering. Nope. Uh, this is also the point where you see... That th- was actually a scene where I got tingles. Like, just that quick little scene yeah. where... <clears throat> don't tell anybody. Don't create panic. Let's fucking do our jobs. And I was just like, ha, huh, all. let's go. And it also showed the relationship between th- those public servants and the reporters. You know, the one reporter goes, can't you give us something? He's like, no. And he kind of bows himself out of it. It's kind of like, well, <laughs> no, what he what he said that was really funny is like, well, we just did a shift change. You guys were all yelling about the budget. Yeah, everybody and we, left. And we need to cut. <laughs> so we had to send everyone home to clock out. So you guys are happy about the money. And oh, she's bullshit. Just, I'm like, well, that was great. Only then he died. Yeah. Uh, as McLean solves Simon's riddles, he recognizes that Simon is using the school bomb distraction to draw the police away from Wall Street. They arrive too late to find that Simon and his agents use the destruction of the subway station to dig into the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and steal $140 billion, billion dollars. of gold bullion in dump trucks. I thought it was bullion. They followed the trucks to aqueducts in the New York City water tunnel, number three. And McLean has Carver continue on Simon's games because he's got to send him on his way to the Yankee Stadium. Yeah. Now, mind you, there's a there's a riddle that happens before this, which I still. Oh, the water, the the water balancing thing. And here's a gallon of five, a gallon of three. I'm like, their solution wasn't the solution that would have done it. No, that that pisses me off. If you listen to how they walk it out or talk it out, it doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. But there is a way to get the solution. They just did it wrong. Yeah. But there's a funny little thing that happens in this. Once they solve it, they leave the briefcase there, and Samuel L. Jackson goes, Some kid could find it. Yeah. And so <laughs> McLean tells them, Give us to those officers over there who are clearly the Germans. Yep. And the Germans are sitting there and they're like, I, I they take at this it. Too. And they go, The one German just puts it on the ground, and the other guy goes, You're not going to take it with you? I'm not going to ride with that. I'm bomb. not riding with that in the car. Some kid could take it. <laughs> Fine, I'll put it in the back. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that, that was a great little connection. I think we should also mention here that there is another great character in this, and that is the Bomb Squad guy. 
Yeah, he literally becomes the hero at the end. He's funny at the beginning when he's explaining the bomb. Really cool stuff. Because he's like, this is great. Why did you do this? Somebody could have been killed by that chair. He's blowing shit up in the office. He's like, but, but don't you see how awesome this is? <laughs> well, when he takes it, he puts the two solutions on the table and smacks his shoe down. You see everybody kind of jump back a little bit like, oh, what's he going to do? <laughs> Nothing. But then just the tiniest little prick. Yeah. Boom. It, I thought he was a great character. Uh, yeah, there really wasn't a bad character in this, I don't think. I don't, I don't know what p- purpose the other two bad guys serve. Oh, Targo and his Targo girlfriend? Targo and his girlfriend. I, I think if you took those two out of the movie, it's still a great movie. Yeah. Like, he can have, like, subordinates, but, like, they had their whole discussion with little FBI guys and why they were important, and then they had to say, well, he's a bomb maker, and I get all that. I'm like, just make Gruber the bomb maker, like. I think, and I think this is something that you see a lot in the in any McTiernan movie is that when he's got bad guys as an ensemble, he names them all. Yeah, I mean, if you look at Die Hard, the original, every single one of those bad guys had a name that was referenced in that movie. Yeah, that's true. And here, you know, you got two more, and it's Targo and I don't remember what the other one's name was. That's what I'm saying. They're throwaway characters. Well, it's because she also never says a single word in this movie. Not at all. Yeah, she has the same look on her face. She doesn't change her look. I mean, she's clearly a cold sociopath. She has the same look during the sex scene. Which, yeah. How is that enjoyable, it, Jeremy Irons? It, Seriously. He's a nut job. Well, not Jeremy Irons, but... Fine. No, his character is. <laughs> That's mean to say. I like Jeremy Irons, jerk. <laughs> Within the tunnel... He drives... He, he, meets the, he meets the dump truck guy. Yep, that's a funny Jerry. Scene. And Jerry's a tour guide now. He's yep. like, he's driving the tunnels going... Here's the really great thing about tunnel number three. <laughs> it's the vents. Those vents are awesome. He's and what is he trivia. saved by later? The vents. The vents. <laughs> yeah, and he, he, everything he says is just pure, like... I know everything Ex- about New York. Exposition gold. Yeah, and you can tell Bruce Willis is having fun with him. Yeah. The uh, and then at the end, you know, hey, I just got to figure out who the twenty first president out of forty two is. Chester A. Arthur. I knew that. <laughs> you knew. Th- I knew that. You would know that. I knew it. Uh-huh. <laughs> Within the tunnel in the aqueduct, uh, McLean kills some of Simon's men, discovering they have a roll of quarters on each of them. Exactly ten. ten. Yes, two dollars and fifty cents. Yep. Discovering they have a roll of quarters on them, Simon destroys a coffer dam, flooding the tunnel, but McLean escapes through a vent that Jerry helped him out with. Exactly. He told him all about. Yep. Ending up near Carver. Now, this is a bit of a coincidental moment. This is your... And I... This, this is my MacGuffin. It, it, it's a... No. This is your true, literal sense of a leap of faith. Well, hold on. I have a couple of them with the Samuel L. Jackson character. If you say MacGuffin one more time when it's not a MacGuffin... <laughs> Samuel L. Jackson, when they first got into the cab, mm-hmm. well, I used to be a cabbie, let me drive. Yeah. Okay, so you used to be a cabbie. Then when they're trying to get uh, something to turn on or something to turn off, well, I used to be an electrician. Okay, yeah, I can see that you've been a cabbie and you've been an electrician. Yeah. Then all of a sudden, he is right where John McClane pops out of the vent. Like, literally, McClane almost lands on the car, and I'm like, fuck me. I mean, I loved... Samuel L. Jackson's character. <laughs> I loved him. But you keep making him the all whatever the term is that he is the only reason the story is able to move forward is because this guy is able to do whatever you need that character to do. Yeah. Which is a MacGuffin. Well, he did. He, McLean did tell him to meet him at a certain spot. And he was driving on his way there. 
Now, what the fact but that he McLean, was driving exactly at that moment when he shot out a hole. That's what I'm saying, because McLean <laughs> was trying to go much further up the tunnel yep. and had to come back. So there's no way he was close to where he was supposed to meet him. Yeah. So McGuffin. Huge no, fucking it's a McGuffin. leap of faith, you motherfucker. I swear to God, <laughs> it. it's a leap of faith. He's pissed. <laughs> anyway, moving on. <laughs> I don't think he can talk. So, uh, <laughs> I now I need to find out where we were. <laughs> uh, they, okay, so they recognize, they recognize the, the roll, roll of quarters, quarters. <laughs> would pay for a toll road. Shut up now, and, <laughs> and follow the trucks to a tanker vessel in the Long Island Sound. They sneak aboard, but realize too late it's a trap. It's a trap. It's a trap. <laughs> they are tied to the real bomb. And Simon says he will destroy the tanker. Now, this is a great scene because he, yep. I think, doesn't Samuel Ed Jackson go on his own with oh, the gun? Yeah. He leaves from him, and he couldn't figure out how to make the uh, trigger work. Yeah, turn, take, take the uh, safety off. <laughs> Apparently, that's always an issue in these movies. And then he took the safety off and shot him right in the leg, and I'm like, oh, that was funny. Which is what Hans Gruber did to McLean in the first movie. Yep. <laughs> I'm still laughing about the other thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's not my fault that you were wrong. They are tied to the real bomb, and Simon says he will destroy the tanker, redistributing the bullion across the sound, which would... Bullion. I thought it was bullion. It's not. All right. Which would severely destroy the economies of the world. McLean convinces Simon to give him a bottle of aspirin. Now, just so we're clear here, it wouldn't destroy the economies of the world because if everybody knew where the gold bullion was, they could just reclaim it. Yep. Uh, McLean convinces Simon to give him a bottle of aspirin. guess that's a MacGuffin, too. It's... McLean is able to free them from the bomb before it explodes, sinking the tanker. Now, do we know why yet? He, how do you know that he knew the, bo- the bottle of aspirin? What's that? How, do you, how did McLean know Simon would have aspirin on it? He didn't. Yes, he did. How? Because at the beginning, they said Simon Gruber suffers from migraines. What? At the very beginning. That's what they said. When the FBI guy? Yep. Really? Yep. And that's when he knew he would have aspirin on him for his migraines. So, but did he, uh, and let's be honest, I've looked at all of my aspirin bottles after this, and there's no stamp underneath them and all that stuff. An expiration date? No, there's an expiration date. Oh, yeah, date. The, the date saying where it's from? Yeah. Yeah. So, how did he know that that was going to happen? That's a MacGuffin, Well, too. he didn't know that. That was a coincidence. So, then why did he, why did he want the aspirin? He wanted the aspirin because he had a fucking hangover. He, he'd been talking about a hangover all day. So, so, it really was just a joke. I thought you were making it seem like he knew something because he knew he had migraines. He just migraines. knew that he would have the aspirin because he knows he suffered from migraines. So, he's like, yeah, you know, it's the John uh, McClane joke. I thought you were saying, like, I, he knew that on the bottom of the bottle was going to be, like, where they were going. And I'm it like, that's just a so stretch. happened. It was like, okay. oh, shit. Because at the time, he's calling his girlfriend, well, Holly. Well, his wife. But, yeah, whatever. We don't even know anymore. Wow. We don't even know anymore. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so McLean is able to free both of them from the bomb before it explodes, sinking the tanker. Free, free falling. <laughs> and now we get to the very end of this thing. The end of the movie. As McLean and Carver are debriefed by the police, McLean says he knows Simon and reports that none of the bullion was on the tanker. McLean finds the bottle of aspirin came from the hotel just inside the, Qu- Qu- I was to say Quebec. Quebec. Quebec border. Uh, now, funny thing about this is that this is one of my favorite lines in any movie. Oh, really? It really does. And it's when Simon is addressing the troops, and he says, Yesterday, we were an army without of country. Tomorrow, we decide which country we want to buy. Oh, see, I don't find it that movie. Uh, 
McLean, Carver, and the police launch an attack on a warehouse near the hotel where Simon and his men are in the process of distributing the wealth and planning their escape. Those Rest- resources got organized real quick. Yeah. Well, he seems to know what he's doing. He's pretty organized here, just like his brother was. I mean, his brother No, had- no, no, no. The police. The police, oh, the police got organized real quick. Yeah. They, they, this is what competence looks like. Well, maybe I'm not used to it in Die Hard. <laughs> the rest of the men are captured, while Simon and his girlfriend, or whoever knows, bumping uglies, yeah, or uh, bumping ugly. Yeah, he's, oh, that he's, was mean. He's I'm bumping sorry. her. And, yeah. Simon and his girlfriend attempt to escape in a helicopter, firing upon McLean. They don't attempt to escape. They're hunting him down. McLean shoots an overhead power line so that it falls onto the helicopter, crashing it and killing all aboard. And he says, "Yippee ki yay, mother." There it is. With the bullion located, Carver convinces McLean to call his wife and credits roll. Good movie. Great movie. Now, the movie's over. What did you think after watching the movie? It was awesome. It reminded me what I loved and why I care about the first one. Would you and, say, would you and say I that? really do say this is the sequel. Okay. I, I After seeing the second one for the first time and this one, I will probably never watch the second one again. Yeah. And it's just this one and then Vengeance. Okay. Yeah, that's hey. I I really I really enjoyed this. I liked it. Yeah, because there's nothing in this movie that references Die Hard 2 at all. No, I don't think they mentioned the airport at all. Nope. And I think it's because Tiernan knows McTiernan knows it was crap. Yeah, things that they got rid of. William Atherton. Who? The reporter you hate. Oh, thank God. In- See, I didn't even remember who he was. Incompetent police chiefs. Yeah, but they didn't bring back Powell. I know. As soon as you, as soon as I thought you're like you're gonna talk about Powell, oh. but. You know, Powell has his place in Die Hard as that's one true. of the bright spots. Yep. Uh, and that's the thing. You watch this movie, and you immediately go, where's Powell? And that tells you what kind of character he was in the original movies. Yep. Um, I know I looked at this, and I was like, thank God John McTiernan's back. Yep. And I know when I watched it the first time, I was excited after I left the theater. In fact, at the time, I was like, this is the best Die Hard movie I've ever seen. Because that's where I was at. It was fresh yeah. in my mind. You tend to exactly. get a little more positive when you're having a good experience in theaters. Looking back at it now, it's not better than Die Hard. Uh, oh, might be in somebody's eyes here. Maybe. I know that for myself, Die Hard has, uh, I think, the story, the plan that Hans Gruber has in the original Die Hard is, you know, it's convoluted. Yep. You know, it has a lot of moving parts. Uh, but believable. It's, I think it's more believable than the number of moving parts that this movie has to have also. This one is believable, and yet not because... I can't believe that so few people were guarding the Federal Reserve. Yeah. They would have needed an army to get to the actual money. And you mean to tell me it was four guys at a desk, one guy in an elevator, and one guy right outside the gate? I call bullshit. And I think this is a cool movie also because it's the second movie that, uh, I think it's the second or third at the time, I can't remember, that Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson did together. They did Pulp Fiction together. Hmm. They did Unbreakable together. That was a good movie. I know. And this one. And it's kind of like, I feel like Samuel L. Jackson, when you think of Bruce Willis, everybody thinks of Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger as that's the big tripod. Maybe Samuel L. Jackson's that fourth piece. He's like Winston Zeddemore of the Ghostbusters. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, who's the audience for this movie? I think this movie is for people that like, it's a recent movie with uh, Colin Farrell, uh, Payphone. Oh, yeah. Like, it's those movies where you are timed where you have the suspense and you have the action, but there's a haste to it. And I've, I almost wonder if this was the beginning of that. Yeah. So anybody that likes movies where there's a tense suspense to it, but it's action, then go. Uh, people who enjoy Riddlers, 
Like oh. the Riddler and things like that. I think mm-hmm. those are the people that would enjoy the action, the intrigue, and uh, the comedy. Yeah. I know. I, I look at this, and I think of Die Hard and what it did for action movies at the time. It modernized the action movie. Mm-hmm. I think this movie modernized the action comedy. Ooh-hoo. This is the rush hour before rush hour. I and did like that. This is, a, this is a trend-setting movie, and it could stand alone in its way. If you like Samuel L. Jackson yelling at you about racial shit, this is like Halloween night, and you have a pillowcase full of candy. That's true. Uh, and, the, you know, it doesn't come off as preachy. Preachy. It just comes off as this, is, this, this is his perspective on the situation that he's living in and yeah. at the time that they're living in, 1995. And if you go back then, you kind of have to agree with him. He knows what he's talking about. Exactly. And a lot of the things that he says now, you can still hear. Exactly. I almost wonder if this could be made after Ferguson. This is also the first time that I ever heard somebody white call a black man racist. Oh. And I remember hearing that, and I was like, what? Can that be said? And I think it really was one of the first times in cinema where, in mainstream at least, that was actually I'd believe I believe you, yeah. I, I can't imagine when it would be before 95. And, 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 you know, the sad thing, not the sad thing, but the strange reality is that Willis is right when he says it. He's right when he says it. He because goes, you don't relation- like me because I'm white. In the relationship between the two of them, Willis has done nothing to get the generalized stereotypes that he's getting. Yeah. You're right. But it also doesn't negate that Samuel Jackson is right to say those things. Mm-hmm. Just don't say them about McLean because you've just met McLean. Yeah. I th- and, and, you know, it's kind of funny. There are also- or is he still upset about the sandwich board? Maybe he has already prejudged McLean. Well, he understood the sandwich, sandwich board afterwards. Maybe. Yeah. But if anything, he should hate McLean, not because of that, but because, you know, he lied to him to get him going on this thing. That's true. <laughs> Saying that the school was in Harlem. But it was actually he, in Chinatown. Actually in Chinatown. And, uh, you know, along the way, I do like the fact that they do find a common ground at the one phone booth where he, Willis has to say, I need you more than you need me. Yep. And you could tell he was waiting for it. And when he hears it, he's like, OK, I'm back on board. Let's yep. do this. It's it's an it's an Samuel equality Do- moment. Well, it's equality, but I've been and I've been saying this a lot, ironically this week. People need to be fucking real. Yeah. Like when you say something, own up to it. Yeah. Don't describe it away. Just say you said something and I was uneducated when I said it, or I didn't think it through, but I said it. I own it. Mm-hmm. And Bruce Willis wants to be honest with Samuel L. Jackson's character, so he's honest. Samuel L. Jackson is speaking honestly, and I liked, I think that's why they work as characters, is because you can believe what they're saying and not think that it's just movie talk. It's just real. Uh, movie report card. My report card is a B plus. Oh. It, it was it was close to an A, mm-hmm. but what kind of thing knocked you off? The the, num- the number of leaps of faith. The the number of leaps of faith, but also the first hour i mean really th- they took so long setting it up mm-hmm. oh well we have to go get a drunk in this we have to go get a maybe not hour but like the first half hour 45 minutes mm-hmm. i literally was like why do i care i mean yes explosion and all this stuff but maybe i've been numbed by post 9 11 or whatever it is but i'm just like where's the urgency I don't I don't get the sense of urgency. I don't get that this is a big deal. And maybe it's because they kept it so small. But then once they got everyone involved, maybe once they got the sanitation and you realize how big the scope is, yeah. that's when the movie got good to me. Okay. I don't know. See, and, and I, I thought you were gonna give it a higher grade actually, maybe an A actually, your name might because when I asked, you know, is this movie better than the original, you know? It is, but there's I have more nitpicky things about this. Yeah. 
Uh, here's what I'll say that's going to piss people off. <laughs> I like Simon Gruber more than Hans Gruber. Um, I think Simon Gruber is a better villain than Hans Gruber. I don't think that can piss off too many people if they really think about it. Yeah, I, I think I think Simon Gruber is a better villain. I think Die Hard was a better film, Yeah, but I think Simon Gruber is a better villain than Hans Gruber. And it's not to knock Alan Rickman. It's no, not to no, no, elevate no. Jeremy Irons. They were just better. They what, were fleshed out more. What I would, what Gruber gets over is the scene with Bruce Willis where he acts like a, a with Hans Gruber. With Hans Gruber, why Hans Gruber gets a little bit over Simon is because of that scene with Willis where he acts like he's scared and and small. But the overall plan, I think Simon's was a better plan. Yeah. But where Simon loses points, the whole relationship with the creepy girl. I don't understand it. I don't understand why it has to be in the movie. I feel like that cheapens him as a character. Or maybe it makes him real more real more real as a character because he has human urges and all this stuff. I was saying it humanizes him a little bit. It does. But, yeah, that's where, even though I think I like Simon more for his plan, Gruber is a better character just from the movie sense of that he has that scene with Willis and Simon's... Worst scene is is that, and I can't really, I can't think of a bad scene Alan Rickman has. Essentially, they both have the same plan. Yeah, divert attention, steal money. It is, but then Simon's get like that whole picking on McLean. Like, there's just well, yeah, well, that's that's the vengeance part of it. It's oh yeah, and I actually wrote that. I'm like, oh, Jeremy Irons is getting vengeance. I get the story. Yeah, Uh, I I gave it a B plus also. I gave it a B plus, and I put down. Although it doesn't follow the one man versus the building pattern, one man versus Nakatomi, one yep. man versus the airport. Yep, they were smart to add a partner to him. Yes, and not only that, a powerful partner in Samuel L. Jackson. Yes, uh, who's on the rise with Pulp Fiction. This is his resurgence, uh, three or four years that he's having here. This is the perfect edge to battle back with Willis. Oh yeah, and in all honesty, you don't like. You don't get the success because Willis didn't know the solutions. Yeah. Car- Carver was the only one that knew the solutions. Yeah. Uh, and it, you know, that's the thing. They portrayed this man as a competent, smart man. Yes. I loved that. The yep. story is different, and that's probably the best thing about it. It's not the same thing. They over didn't rehash it. Yep. I mean, some people could say, well, it was one man versus Nakatomi, one man versus an airport. Now it's one man versus a city. No. You could you, you could point in that direction, but it's going to be an awfully hard sell That's to defend it. Yeah. This movie afforded the Die Hard series a fourth movie, whereas the second movie made you hope that they would stop. Yeah, this one made you happy that they made the fourth one, which I think is why this movie took place. Like I think it was I think it came out four years after because didn't four years? Yeah, four four or five years because ninety one ninety one. Okay, so 91. four years. It took four years to get this thing off the ground, and then two thousand seven. For four. Four years, and it was originally supposed to be a Lethal Weapon movie. Yep. You know? Thank then, God Joel Silver didn't grab it. And then 12 years before we got what? Actually, for the longest time, I watched Live Free or Die Hard and <laughs> Die Hard. Those are the only two movies I watched. So would you say that this movie right here is one that you're glad you've watched and you would actually maybe even consider if it's in the bargain bin, you'd buy it? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is this is definitely a bargain bin buy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. It's a B-plus all around. That's a pretty solid, good movie, and definitely one that you should see you in should. the Die Hard series. Yes. So we went, we went from Die Hard is classic, perfect. You went to Die Hard 2, which was 
Oh my god. <laughs> the first movie is great. The second movie, you dump it. The third movie, definitely check it out. It's worth it. It'll lead you right into the fourth movie, which is next awesome. week. Live free and die. No. Yeah, live free, die hard. Is that next week? Yes. Are you? Sh- I thought that was the fifth movie. No, that's fourth. What's the fifth one? A good day to die hard. That's all I got time for today, Movie Planeteers. You can email the Movie Planet using the address movieplanetpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to pass the word on to your friends about the show. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Overcast, Podbean, or Spotify, and help the show get on its feet with a four or five star review. Tweet with any questions, comments, theories, and I'll try to fit them into the show next time we're on the air. Send those tweets to at MoviePlanetPod and like us on Facebook and Instagram using the links in the show notes. Special thanks to Twisterium and Sound J Music for providing our intro music and our ending music. Thanks for listening and happy movie watching. <laughs>